This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome into another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you for new episodes every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, of course, ripodcast.com, or wherever else you may be listening right now. Today, we welcome the new executive director of the Black Lives Matter Rhode Island Political Action Committee, Harrison Tuttle, and Harrison succeeding Corey Jones, who was recently appointed to Dan McKee's administration as a policy director. Corey was on the program, boy, I think it was like last fall that he was on, and um, I've been following this organization pretty closely since they formed, and ostensibly what it is is they're trying to make policy and shape policy um, from the perspective of the Black Lives Matter movement and just broadly social justice, equity, and all those conversations that have been ongoing for a long time, right? But particularly in 2020 and into 2021. So we welcome Harrison here for his debut appearance on the pod. And we get into a lot. We zoom out all the way to the 36,000 foot view on some of these issues. And we also zero in on some of the hyper-specific stuff that this political action committee is working on. And it's particularly relevant right now as we're just a couple of weeks into the new governor's administration, Governor McKee, that is, of course, McKee presented his budget last week, including elements such as the legalization of cannabis, um, as we've seen emerge from the Rhode Island Senate. But it's going to be interesting to see, and I think a lot of observers are paying attention in the first 100 days even, what sort of specific policies and challenging positions does Governor McKee and his administration take when it comes to serving those who have been particularly underserved in government, in Rhode Island politics in general, in the past? And what sort of changes to serve those communities that, let's be honest, whose voices have been oftentimes brushed aside or sort of applied in a secondary manner to decision-making processes. So we get into all that today with the new executive director of the BLM RI PAC, Harrison Tuttle. Thanks again to all of you out there for joining in. And hey, for daily digital content, make sure you check out the social media pages, Twitter and Instagram at Bill Bartholomew. You can also follow at Bartholomew Town on Instagram. I build like a Rhode Island newscast in the Instagram stories every single day of things I'm covering, things that are going on, um, sometimes some analysis and opinion I put in there. So that's Instagram at Bartholomew Town. Of course, you can also join the Bartholomew Town Podcast Facebook group. That's sort of our discussion forum. And we always have fascinating conversations. People take all different positions, and it's fun to see the audience sort of hammer out, sometimes agree, sometimes have disagreements. But you know what? It's authentic. So it's good stuff. And um, that's the Bartholomew Town Podcast Facebook group. You go ahead and join that if you're on Facebook. And you can send me an email anytime, bill at ripodcast.com. Com. Lots coming up here in March and April. Already taped some really cool episodes and have some stuff coming up on the horizon. So I look forward to serving you with that content. If you want, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts right now. It helps the program grow. Okay, let's get to it. The new executive director of the BLMRI PAC, Harrison Tuttle. All right, so let's get into it. So first of all, congratulations on your now, I mean, it's a collective effort, but you're essentially you're you're the running the show here in the pack. And you know what was that like for you? I saw Corey a few times over the last week. Now part of the the Dan McKee policy unit, so to speak. But what's it like for you, kind of being installed um, at directing this pack? Yeah, it's it's an uh, honor, uh, not only to be you know voted upon by people that you work with, but it's an honor. Um, being such a difference maker in the communities here in Rhode Island and, and, you know, throughout New England with the BLM New England PAC. Uh, 
you know, I, it feels like a sense of responsibility. Um, but you know, that's type of, you know, responsibility that I embrace because I really do want to make change. And I feel like, you know, everything that the PAC does reflects not only the people on the staff, but, you know, my views on, you know, how things should, should change. Yeah. It's a relatively new operation, I guess, for anyone out there that's not familiar with the work that you do in BLM RI PAC, and I guess expanding out to New England, like what specifically are you working on? What are you doing to try to influence policy? Yeah. So BLM PACs are a fairly new thing. In fact, um, there is only one BLM national PAC that is in existence before this summer. And Corey Jones, Joshua Franco, um, and Joyce Wise uh, spent all summer thinking of a way that um, we would take the BLM movement that is inherently political, as we all know, uh, to a you know point in time in which it took from organizing and protest to something that was far more sustainable. Um, and so Corey and Josh and, and Joyce all thought of an idea of how to do that. And they thought of a political action committee. Um, and so what we've been doing is we've been, you know, advocating for different policies. Um, we're a fairly new um, organization compared to other organizations that have been around, but um, we really feel like what we're doing when using data and being able to um, be innovators in this field that we can really um, make some change that, you know, is definitely needed here in Rhode Island. Yeah, no question about it. And yeah, protesting and action, that's that's one super important component, obviously. Education, K-12 education, just general human education is another thing. The media and how that's, you know, able to to, to push certain messages, if you will, uh, from an, an unbiased place, just from a, hey, look, this is what's going on. Shine that mirror, that artistic mirror. But then also at the end of the day, there has to be data. There has to be actual action inside the halls of government. So that's kind of where the pack is picking up the work, I guess. Yeah. Oftentimes, you know, when it comes to people who want to run for election, um, normal people who don't have the resources that, you know, the typical politician that people think of um, has um, when it comes to being able to reach out to friends and family for big dollar donations. Um, what our PAC thought of was an, a, a way that we could help fundraise and help provide um, stability for people who want to run, but necessarily don't have the funds for that or the political profile for that. And so we really wanted to you know, emphasize the fact that if you are a young Black progressive and you know, you're willing to fight for the things that are important and that matter, then we would have you know, no problem endorsing you um, and supporting you in whatever race that you want to be a part of. What do you think about 2022 as we look at it right now? Obviously, we've got Dan McKee, and it's going to be interesting to see how the, the gubernatorial races play out. I think that when I was watching Seth Magaziner and and Secretary of State Gorbea on the stage yesterday, and even to an extent, Congressman Langevin, you know, you, you're, you're sitting there watching them as they, and this was at the McKee ceremonial inauguration. It seemed to me like, they probably are thinking, wow, my my plans have been somewhat thwarted here. But looking at the rest of the races around the state, I mean, where do you see the critical areas right now as far as engagement and where you can do the most work? Yeah, I think a critical uh, element in which we're going to definitely be focusing on the PAC in 2022 is city council. Yes. Um, yep. City council, for people who may not know, has a lot of impact on 
a, a, a ton of, of ton of things um, from, you know, police to, you know, homelessness issues to um, a variant of things. And so our main focus is being able to um, identify people who are thinking of running um, for city council. And there is an unprecedented uh, amount of wards that are open um, as, you know, a city council person, you can run for four terms. Um, and so, you know, this is really an unprecedented moment for people, uh, especially youth, um, uh, young black progressives to run for city council and really make the change that they, they are seeking. Yeah, no question about it. City council is so overlooked and it was part of the Rhode Island political co-ops work and it's, it's there on the radar screen, but you know, I think about Newport a lot of times, which, you know, people perceive as like this rich, you know, everyone lives in a mansion and wears like a sailing cap or something or whatever, like that sweater vest tied around their neck. But the reality is it's an urban location. There's more affordable housing uh, need than there is availability in, in a number of different contexts. And it's a massively... Um, under a lot of voices are massively underrepresented on the city council. And that creates a lot of policies that are damaging in terms of housing, police, et cetera. And I go, I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, you know, this is a moment where if you've got the right people and by right, just someone who wants to put the work in and engage them, you could really change the city. Mm, Yeah. I, I have, uh, my grandmother, um, used to live, um, in Newport and, you know, I remember going to Middletown um, and, and you know, always going there to visit them. And um, I remember my mom because I had that idea in which middle yeah. in which, you know, Newport was a, a thriving, you know, majority white yep. uh, place in which, you know, of rich people went. And um, my mom had to remind me. She was like, no, there are a lot of poor people and marginalized people in, in this area. And that, you know, oftentimes we do that for a majority of places in which the places in which um, are meant to be showcased, for example, downtown Providence yep. uh, are highlighted for obvious reasons, uh, but ignore the people who are struggling um, and who need help the most. And oftentimes uh, those places that are shown to be luxurious are at the expense of people who are struggling right now. And so it's really important that we identify uh, the people that are struggling um, in which we feel like we have and being able to help them through programs in which um, are not being provided right now. Definitely. Where do you think the biggest need is right now? Looking at Providence, where, where there's so many issues at play now, housing, obviously education. I mean, let's get real. But even the, the multi-hub situation, the downtown bus terminal and, and how that's being perceived and, and sort of messaging around that's going, I mean, where, where should the focus be overall? Yeah, I mean, education is a huge, huge element that um, I feel like maybe, maybe is um, overlooked uh, because there are people who have good intentions in the education system. But one of my main things when I look at the education system is the system itself. Um, It is a very flawed system. It's a very outdated system. Um, It doesn't work for everyone. Oftentimes uh, in education, we teach towards a smooth road. Um, And reality is, is that, you know, there are very few people, if any, that, 
you know, learn that way. And the, the reality is that there's a bumpy road, right? And everybody has um, different challenges, um, whether you have someone, whether you have a learning disability or you have um, other factors that are, you know, out of the school system, we have to do a better job at uh, being able to accommodate people who have different challenges. Um, and we have to do a better job at understanding that the system itself is not working um, for a majority of people. And we also have to understand that 86% of teachers in Providence are white. And that's not to say that you know, teachers in the Providence school system aren't trying their hardest. Uh, that is to say that we have a infrastructure and we have a culture in which black or minority teachers are not being um, not being accepted or not being, you know, introduced to teaching at an age in which, you know, they could go into this teaching profession. And so the question then becomes for the governor. And then the question becomes for everyone, you know, who is interested in education is how do we create a pipeline? How do we create programs for minority students uh, to be introduced to teaching? And how do we get them in the classroom? Because um, you cannot have someone being taught that does not look like, you know, let's say me. Um, and they're not going to relate to issues in which, you know, let's say something race related. They're not going to be able to articulate that, not only because they're uncomfortable as a white teacher, uh, but because there are things that, you know, black and minority students experience that, you know, other, you know, white suburban teachers don't, they can't connect with. And even though they want to help, they just don't know how to go about it. And so we have to create maybe training for teachers to be able to have discussions like that. Yeah, 100% agree. And you can make the same argument, I think, for the police department. And, you know, some people want a residency requirement. Some There's a lot of different ways to look at it. But a lot of Providence police officers live in East Greenwich, particularly at the in the, the higher ranks. And you wonder, okay, is that just a just an impossible situation to smooth out when you don't have someone who understands the nuances of the area, the experience of, of so many people that they're policing. And, you know, then you get into the conversation of a lot of people will say, okay, it's black lives matter versus blue lives matter. You know, it's like military police versus anarchy. And it's like, well, actually there is this massive space where things can be improved and like, why can't we work on that instead of our bickering about this nonsense? We, we, as, um, we, as a state, we, as a country, um, are at a serious crossroads between, um, police and, you know, black and brown communities, but specifically disenfranchised and economically challenged, um, people. Um, and, uh, it's important to realize that, um, People who are affected by police um, are also people who, you know, have come from a background in which they have a history of police brutality. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about black and brown communities. And so the experience that, you know, someone who grew up in a household in which um, didn't experience police brutality or didn't know anybody with police brutality, for them to be able to connect to that experience of a black and brown person is very difficult. And so um, we saw a lot of people come out in the protests this summer. And that really gave me hope for, you know, 
all races and all um, people coming together. And I think that is the route that we need to take. We need to take a, a route in which, you know, people band together and come up with solutions to betterment um, our communities. And one of those reasons, Bill, is, is having police um, be resided in their fam in, in the area in which they're policing. Um, and not to say that, you know, oftentimes, you know, we get stuck on, um, you know, seeing the end result and not trying to work in between that. Um, and oftentimes we get stuck on, you know, taking the first step forward. And one of the first steps forward is being able to understand that, you know, the police have way too many responsibilities and they have abused their power for hundreds of hundreds of years. And with that a result in the system that they're operating in, it's resulting into a genocide of black people and a, in a way in which it's not immediate, but it is slow. And that is to do with the prison industrial complex, the military industrial complex, and you know everything that is going on. And so we have to understand that you know people are dying because of this. And we need to find solutions, not because you know, it is, oh, Black Lives Matter or versus Blue Lives Matter. We need to find solutions in which we need to stop people from dying. And we need people to come together with a collective goal to find a alternative way of operating. And that makes people uncomfortable. It's not the fact that, you know, people don't agree with that, the fact that Black people are being treated differently, but it's the fact that people do not want to envision a world that is different from what they grew up in. And that is the most difficult part for someone who, you know, wants to make change, but understands that it's going to take a majority of people support to do that. And so what I try to do is I try to, and what the PAC and other organizers try to do is try to be able to um, say it in a way in which people can understand. Um, because I find that um, when people do understand these complex issues, um, they are in favor of actually making change. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not particularly controversial and that's, what's startling about a lot of what, what last year's action was about the, the visceral reaction that people would have in the streets opposing some of the, the marches that was really disturbing to me because, you know, at the end of the day, you're talking about topics that are not, they're not particularly controversial. They're not particularly um, hard to understand. And the solution or a solution is the only way that this cycle can possibly be broken. So why not work towards that solution? Why oppose people who want right. to move forward? Right. And, and we saw, you know, the police, you know, all across the country, not just Rhode Island. I mean, for anybody that was out, you know, protesting peacefully. Um, they were using the way they were mobilizing and the way that the police were acting was um, any everything but war. And they were doing everything possible to um, stop protesters from peacefully protesting. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody can think of the Capitol and what happened and, and, the, and the insurrection. And unfortunately, um, that is our reality, is, is the reality is that you know, what is being upheld right now is, is white supremacy. And so how do we, how are we as a people who are not for white supremacy, 
uh, taking the power away from the people who are upholding the system. Um, and we have to take a main focus on the specific systems in which affect people. The people are going to play the game because there are going to politicians are going to, you know, operate within the system for their own political or financial game. Um, the main thing is how do we change the system and policies and elect people to do that? Um, and if we can do that, then we could, you know, change uh, the codes in which they have. Um, oftentimes I hear that, you know, we need diversity, right? You see politicians add a bunch of people with different backgrounds um, that are diverse. And the thing is, is yeah, that's great, but they're not changing any of the power structures. And so we really have to operate in terms of how are we going to be able to gain um, power and how are we going to be able to uh, effectively make change um, for the betterment of people. And that is, you know, gaining majority in the city council. That is, you know, gaining majorities in these municipal level governments um, all across uh, New England. And that is the most important thing. Um, yeah. 100% boards of directors, whatever, hospitals, policy boards, whatever it may be. Hey fam, do you want to start your own podcast or do you have a pod that you'd like to take to the next level? Well, let me help you out. Send me an email, bill at ripodcast.com or text me 401-524-6825. I'll show you how B-Town Media has helped other clients reach their podcasting goals and you may be surprised at just how affordable it is. That's bill at ripodcast.com. You, are you optimistic at minimum about the Dan McKee administration coming in? Do you feel like that there's going to be an opportunity for change in that space? Yeah. Um, obviously, going back to what I said with, you know, diversity and how, you know, diversity is great, but if, you're on, if your plan is only diversity, then it is not going to be a sufficient solution past, you know, just being able to say, hey, I have a, you know, Black person on our, on our team. Um, now, do I believe that that's something that Dan uh, may do? I have no idea. I know that Corey Jones, our former executive director, is an extremely motivated person and is someone who really wants to make change. And I think that Dan um, surrounding himself with those people and being willing to have an open mind is definitely a good sign. Yeah, it's so I, definitely... do, I do have and, and we just held an event with Dan. Um, on February 27th with a group of local youth um, activists. And so I do have hope for Dan. I do. I think Dan is somebody who is going to be able to um, hopefully get the economy back through small business. And I think that um, we have to continue to um, be someone that is right there with Dan and say, hey, Dan, this is what's going on in these communities. And we need to find solutions for that. Um, and I think that we should work with Dan as long as he shows us that, you know, he's willing to work with us. Yeah, it, it really is going to be fascinating to see how it plays out in that particular sense, whether or not there's there's more. I think there will be more boots on the ground, so to speak, than Governor Raimondo, for sure, in, in particular communities, in particular zip codes, et cetera. But what does that do in terms of translating into policy, in terms of signing off on budgets? You know, making life difficult for people who would like to uphold 
whether it's white supremacy or just what they're comfortable with, you know, how does, how does that play itself out over the next year, really? Because that's about the amount of time he has to, to show the state who he is before the election cycle is going to be in full throttle. Yeah, well, we're at a very important time in this state and we're at a very important time in this in this country where there are people who are, you know, homeless, there are people who have lost their businesses, there are people who cannot afford to pay medical bills. Um, and the most important thing is when that happens, people seek answers and it's not something in which people are willing to wait. It's not something in which people are willing to um, be, you know, put their faith in something that is not something that's reliable because these are people's lives are on the line. Yeah. Uh, these are people's health that's on the line. And so that is when it's going to get very, very um, dire for people to have solutions in which they can get their life back on track. Um, and what you will see is you will have, you'll have the left who's pushing for, you know, solutions when it comes to um, healthcare, when it comes to um, housing. And then you'll have the right who is equally as um, agitated. And you are going to have, and not to mention with elections and the George Floyd trial that's going to occur, that's going on today. Yeah. What you're going to see is you're going to see a clash of two groups of people. And then the question then becomes, and how does how does leaders how do leaders handle that and where do they take sides because it is no longer situations in which um, politicians can be neutral on any of these issues. Um, people's lives are on the line. People's housing, people's um, businesses are on the line. So how do we how do we identify those people who are for us and how do we identify the people who say they're for us but are, aren't actually for us? That's one of the main keys. Um, right now. Yeah. I love what you just said there, that there's no more space for neutrality. It's so true. There's so many people who have floated by whether they're saying, well, I'm independent or I go issue by issue or, you know, I'm moderate or I'm this or I'm that. But the reality is you have to be very clear about where you stand on these issues right now, because there's no more margin of error. There's no more kicking the can down the street type of, of activity. I mean, COVID-19 alone showed that the disparities in our society are totally unacceptable. They need immediate correction. And anyone who's opposed to that or gets in the way of that is doing humanity a disservice. There's no more room for, well, you know, we'll, we'll see how it works out. We'll see how it plays out. We know how it's going to play out. We've seen it for centuries in contemporary society. We've seen it for decades here, you know, and it's, it's a time right now. It's a moment where, Things need to pivot, and it's just a matter of on an individual by individual basis, whether you're a political leader in terms of an elected official, whether you're an appointed official, whether you're in the media, whether you're just an, a citizen who's looking to make a change. This is a moment where you have to be very clear about where you stand. And, and unfortunately, is, is that politics are very much like religion Yeah, and um, which, you know, your politics are passed down from generation to generation. Um, and people are not willing to move off of that, no matter, uh, you know, the facts that are provided. And, you know, there are a few moments in history in which you do see a people who, a group of people who may not be for 
um, the change that we're calling for that see a moment in which George Floyd is uh, murdered and you see a mass movement of people who are calling for action. It's in that moment in which we need to utilize the people's willingness for change at a massive level in which we really need to educate, politically educate people, but not only uh, make change that people are calling for. Yes. We're at a very important time right now in which, you know, the BLM movement is widely popular. And so for the PAC's perspective, it's how are we going to be able to use that leverage that we have in which, you know, maybe wasn't possible a couple of years ago. How are we going to be able to use that and not sell out to our, not sell out to compromise or deals, but fight for the things that we're fighting for? And there is a difference between not compromising and making progress. Um, not compromising is something when you are dead set on ideals, but you, if you both, if so, one of the main problems that, you know, the left has is that everyone is very idealistic and oftentimes we all want to end up at the same place. It's the question of how do we get in between those moments? And oftentimes we become stuck on the first move, which often confuses people on what they should do. The main thing is for us is to be able to take that first step and being able to make progress and being able to elect people. And then, and then we can have discussions on different things, but we have to be able to come together and elect people and have people, you know, fight for the things that need to be fought for. Totally 100% agree. And I think more and more people, it's, it's like, um, in music, you know, when, when, when you have a specific type of music, whether it's especially more like indie, like indie hip hop, indie rock, whatever it is, there's always that center fan base. They care every release their their Spotify playlist or they're sharing it. They understand it. They know what's happening. And then there's, it's like a bullseye, like a, a dartboard. And then there's the next layer out. And then there's the next layer out. And you're always, as a musician, you're always trying to reach further out on that dartboard. That's exactly where it's at right now with this movement, because the further out you go, people are willing by and large. I think, I hope that people are by and large willing to listen and become part of something bigger than themselves in terms of making a change. But it's like, how do you reach them? How do you get that? How do you expand further out on the dartboard, so to speak? Right. And we know that, you know, over 74 million people voted for the Democrat party alone. Right. So we know that there are people who are willing to go out and vote. We also know that there are 70 million people who voted for the Republican party and Donald Trump. So we know that we have a huge amount of people who have differing opinions and that you have a media who for the most part will be able to uh, tell those groups of people how they should react on a day-to-day, year-to-year, month-to-month. And it becomes very difficult for a person to be able to go back and question, let's say, any part, any news outlet such as CNN. If you hear something on CNN, and even though you know they are the better of the two, uh, ultimately, uh, of the two news outlets, Fox and CNN, ultimately, um, they still uphold a 
part of the problem in which they are participating in a form of neoliberalism in which they seek to act like you can just reform a broken system. And that is not possible um, when you have the disparities and you analyze how this system works under capitalism. It is a system that is built upon exploitation. There's a system that's built upon um, the capitalist making profit. And that does not mean that if you're a business owner, that you're a bad person because you want to make a profit. That is a system issue. And that's one of the main things that, you know, if there's anything that somebody takes from this podcast is it's a, it's a system issue and how can we change systems? Um, and it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to uh, try to reimagine a world in which, you know, we have not lived in. Um, that's okay. The world is made up of accumulation of ideas and to try to play on a set game, a fixed game that has been played for over a hundred years that has proven to not work. It's just not, it's just not how we should live. There shouldn't be a, we shouldn't be the richest country in the world and have people out on the street homeless. Yeah. We shouldn't have people dying by the thousands every single day when there are resources available for us to be able to create strong programs and that's not even like, you know, I'm someone who wants to, you know, change the system completely and throw capitalism away and move to a more socialist country. But to say that we can't provide something similar to the Norway model in which we just have really strong welfare pro uh, programs, that's absolutely doable. And to suggest that that's not doable and to suggest that that's not achievable um is is ludicrous because that's absolutely pro possible and, and people would be for that people yeah. are for having shelter people are for having food people are for having health care these are things that are fundamentally true to everyone yeah just, even even conservative people it's just the people that do have it and have had it do not want to give it to other people because it costs them um a luxury or, or I don't know. I, I really don't know why there are people who are not for these strong welfare programs. Um, when you consider that money that is being used at a national level and a state level could be better used. We yeah. spend, we spend billions and billions of dollars on military and there's no reason for that. And other than people who have other interests that are outside of the uh, people in America, such as oil, such as, and that's one of the things that's holding back, you know, the Green New Deal and, and, other, and other things is that you have other interests, you have strong corporate interests that are holding back, you know, programs for the people. So we need to focus on those people and then focus why that system is operating in which people can influence that much. Absolutely. And you know, the thing about it is that, okay, if it was actually a free market quote unquote situation mm -hmm. and which 
it isn't. It's it then then that would be almost be a different conversation, but it's rigged. Now go back to Newport for an example that's that is driving me ballistic right now. You've got this food truck. These guys came up with this awesome idea. They've got like a wood-fired pizza food truck. And it's great pizza. It's affordable. It's perfect for COVID. You go wait in, in line, you get the, the the pizza. It's awesome. It's great. It's an awesome thing. When you're when I love going there when I have a band I play in down there, it's great. Mm-hmm. Well, now you've got a sea of restaurant owners on Bellevue Avenue, which is where the mansion, the, the mansions are, that are saying they're doing everything they can to shut this thing down because they say it's impacting their business. And my thought is make a better pizza then. Make a better experience. That's capitalism. That's the game you want to play. Right Now, when it doesn't work in your favor, you rig the system against somebody who actually has an idea that people enjoy because it backfires and it, it, it undercuts your profit margin. So it's not even as if you can say capitalism in and of itself in, a, in its purest form is even being practiced here. It's this completely false notion of capitalism. So why not just then reinvent it anyway with that strong welfare, social infrastructure, if you will, the, the, the services that are required and, and build from that point because it's already an artificial version of capitalism. Right. And, and you, and we saw that at a, ma- like a massive level with the stock market. Yeah. Robin hood and all that. Yeah. We saw that and, and we have a, you know, massive outrage from regular people just for them to find out exactly what you just talked about, that it is not a game that is fair for everyone. Right. And it is the people who are up upholding the uh, unfairness, I would say, that are the people who are calling for, hey, everyone can be a billionaire. Hey, everyone can be successful. And the reality is, is that no, that's not true. Because in order for that to happen, you need to have a group of people, a massive group of people who are not exploited and who are not being used for your own benefit. And what I'm in favor of is having a government in which the workers control the means of production. Yeah, syndicalism. In which oftentimes when people hear socialism, they scoff at, oh, it's the state. Well, the state is the people if they own the means of production. Imagine a world in which people can put themselves to college and have these opportunities without having to worry about sacrificing shelter and food every night. If you present like that, people are like, oh, I'm, I'm for that. Right. We're in a situation in which there are the elite class pushing the agenda that these massive issues, these complex issues that have ranged for generations and generations before that outside of the United States can be fixed with stimulus checks that, you know, are a thousand dollars. And the reality is, is that's not possible. And so we have to come up, we seriously, and and there are people who will not come to that table because it directly impacts their financial gain. That's right. And that's the, that's the great challenge of our time is how, how to get more people on board with understanding the world is, it needs to be in a better place and failure to do that is it's a moral obligation. 
you know, what, no matter what your spiritual beliefs, whether you're a member of an organized religion, even if you're atheist, you know, Steve Alquist out there walking around, he still, I think, feels it's a moral obligation as just creatures to take right. care of each other at a basic level. And it's fascinating because you're totally right when you bring that to somebody. I remember Joe Trillo, who ran as the, you know, the independent far right candidate, um, you know, and others. I remember Feroshi when he was a good candidate for governor. This is mutually agreed on the, the 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 ways to get there. This is that is not agreed on, but everyone agrees that you have to have that baseline of support for people. And if you don't, then the whole system is going to collapse. Right. It's 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 it's, it's a disadvantage to have right. the whole thing collapse. Right. You can't be for the people and then disregard the people at the right. same time. <laughs> exactly. And you certainly cannot advocate for things just to not do that when these politicians know that they're going to do that. Yeah. When politicians put together campaigns, they think of an idea of how, you know, specifically, and now we see specifically moderate Democrats will appeal to the progressives in which they'll hold something and say, Hey, we'll do this for you. If you vote for us, I don't want a piece of the pie. I want the whole pie. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. And you can do that. That's possible if you get majority in these races. You can make change in this state by simply going out to your, you know, local organization, wherever it is, and seeking to make change. And it is not enough to just post on Facebook or post on Instagram that you're displeased. It's you have to go out and actually be a part of an organization in any form. You don't have to be, you know, involved heavily. You just need to be a part of an organization. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.